Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, you've probably been hearing a lot about PBMs lately. And in this episode, we're talking with someone who is going to give a little bit of insight into uh, what to look for in a PBM contract, how do those pharmacy rebates work, and some crazy pharmaceutical pricing stories. So hope you learned some insights here with our next guest. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest, Joseph or Joey Diesenhaus, is Senior Vice President and Head of Pharmacy Services for Health Trust Performance Group. He's responsible for the Pharmacy Services Group, which represents over 14 billion in annual pharmaceutical purchases across classes of trade and delivers innovative strategies across contracting, clinical, operational efficiency, and supply management disciplines. The Pharmacy Services Groups also operates the largest sole-sourced PBM collective in the country. Dysonhaus joined Health Trust in 2016 after serving the organization as an outside consultant for more than a decade. And prior to Health Trust, he spent 20 years working for a leading professional services advisory firm in a number of leadership roles and serving several Fortune 100 organizations and large health systems. Mr. Dysonhaus is a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and a member of the American Academy of Actuaries and is licensed in life health insurance across all 50 states. He's a frequent speaker on subjects related to pharmacy insurance and benefit strategies, insurance exchanges, as well as the general U.S. healthcare landscape. Joey, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Hi, Hillary. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be on your show today. Well, thanks for joining us. And now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a bit about your personal life. Sure. Well, I I spent uh, the first uh, years of my career in Canada, where I uh, grew up just outside of Toronto. And uh, but I've been in the southeast now for about 20 years and uh, outside of work, my wife, Tracy, and I have three teenagers, so life is always full of drama and surprises. Uh, and uh, I recently uh, picked up a guitar to try to learn how to play. Uh, you and I living in Nashville, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of really amazing guitar players, so it's the right city to learn in, but uh, got, I have a long way to go, but it's good fun. Oh, good. I always love to hear a little bit more of the personal side. And um, yes, fascinating. There are a lot of Canadians that love country music and make their way down to Nashville. So I'm sure you've got lots of family visiting as well. Um, So, all right, we're both here in Nashville uh, and Health Trust. Tell us a little bit more about that and and what is Health Trust affiliated with? course, Nat, we're in Nashville, one of the healthcare capitals of the country. Um, tell us a little bit more. Sure. Uh, yeah, Health Trust 
Health Trust is a group purchasing organization or GPO. Uh, and, and I know you're familiar with the term, uh, but, but some, of, some of your listeners may not be. Um, it's sort of a, a niche industry that if you don't associate with it, you don't hear much about it. But at the core, what we do is we help our members purchase the items that they need uh, for their business to keep their expenses as low as possible. And when I say a member, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a provider entity most of the time, the hospital, a surgery center, a physician clinic, a long-term care um, uh, facility, et cetera. But we do service organizations outside of healthcare as well. And, and PBM would be one example of that, right? Where, where organizations use a PBM, whether they are healthcare providers or they're service companies or manufacturers or, uh, you know, or food production or, or what have you. And so we contract with these uh, suppliers across many different areas that could be, you know, medical surgical equipment or PPE, of course, pharma, uh, could be other physician preference items like implants. It could be purchase services. Uh, but but in, a, in a nutshell, what we do is we, we leverage our, our size and scale and subject expertise to drive value into the contract that we make available um, to our members. And now my, my team, of course, focuses on pharmacy, um, where, as you mentioned, we contract for billions in, in annual spend across our membership. And, and Driving a, a, str a strong contract is, is about price, certainly, but it's about far more than that. That's only one ingredient um, to a good contract. You know, for example, making sure that there's adequate supply uh, of, the, of the pharmaceuticals in question so that there, um, so the risk of, um, of supply gaps or shortages is, is managed appropriately, um, as well as a host of other, um, you know, other protections. And then Within our pharmacy business, we essentially have two lines or functions. We have the group that contracts for providers, and then we have the group that contracts for plans, right? And, that, and as you mentioned um, in your introduction, the term class of trade, who, uh, which many of your listeners may be familiar with, just refers to different um, sort of contract groupings where pricing can vary uh, depending on who you are, what drug it is, and why you're buying it, the price can be different. One of the one of the many nuances of this industry that make things complicated, unfortunately. But uh, so we help both providers and plan sponsors contract for pharma, either the drugs that they're buying to um, administer or dispense to their own patients, or the drugs that are being purchased through a PBM program to benefit the employees or their families within a plan sponsor's plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I, I bet a lot of the listeners are familiar maybe with, um, the provider group or, you know, health systems or maybe large physician practices and things and, you know, familiar with, okay, you leveraging their GPO to get best prices, um, for different drugs and medical equipment. Talk to us a little bit more about, um, how you work with plan sponsors and, um, you know, what, they are needing uh, in terms of contracts and things? What do they need to look for in that? Right. So uh, in, in a typical plan uh, environment, the, the decision on choosing a, a PBM and, and negotiating a PBM contract is, is housed in the human resources department. Not always, but, but typically. 
And so um, th this, this gets very technical very quickly, uh, which is rather unfortunate. But you know, I, I often say that a, that a PBM contract is, is much like an ancient hieroglyph because it's, uh, it's written in a foreign language and every, every little nick uh, in the tablet, so to speak, can mean uh, a huge amount in the context of what, what's trying to be said. Um, but HR, HR buyers and others who negotiate PBM contracts are really, are really looking for you know, the most value, but the question becomes how, how to obtain it, what is it, how to measure it. Um, and I think, that, I think that one of the most important things is, is making sure that the contract as much as possible has proper alignment of incentives between, between you as the plan sponsor and the PBM. Right. What you want to avoid is a situation where, you know, there are two agents that can be used to treat a particular condition and they have equal efficacy. But one of them is cheaper for the plan and the patient and the other one makes the PBM more money. And, and that may sound confusing as how could that even happen? And we can talk about some of that, certainly. But alignment of incentives is important to ensure that wherever possible, everyone is sort of rowing in the same direction to drive efficiency into the program. Because of course the price of the drug is very important, uh, but there is also a, a host of other factors like you know, the, the utilization and prescribing, um, you know, dosing, all of the other things that factor into um, the ultimate you know, efficacy and cost of, of the product. And this of course is an area that HR professionals are not verse in, right? Their, their jobs are, are, are broad, focusing on a number of topics, compensation, benefits, recruiting, talent, and so on and so forth. And, and so um, you know, having, having the right setup becomes particularly important. And then it gets a whole lot more into the weeds, uh, you know, from, from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we are seeing more pharmacists and pharmacy involvement, um, come in and help, um, these plans in managing, you know, their, their prescription costs and things, um, and let alone the, the contracts. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about alignment of incentives and, um, what are some of the, you know, questions and things that, uh, you know, these HR departments are looking for and what, what are the value adds for them? Right. Well, one of, one of the, uh, so key, key areas is most, most organizations, uh, be, because of how complex this area is and how many different priorities, uh, and, 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 factors um, HR leaders are looking into, there's usually, there's usually a third party that gets hired as well, uh, sometimes referred to as a consultant or an advisor or a broker. And I'm just gonna use all those terms interchangeably and just call them, call them brokers. And so they'll work with these brokers to help them decide on the best ingredients for a strong plan with a strong performing uh, you know, cost structure and so forth. And so, you know, what, one, of the, one of the things that I would always encourage uh, HR leaders to ask, you know, to ask of their advisors, of their brokers, is, you know, to, to consistently provide updates on the market, what's new, what's changing, how might emerging trends affect cost, quality, trend, uh, cost over time, uh, risk, and just a host of other factors. 
And so leverage that that broker's you know expertise uh, in the space. And I would also encourage uh, uh, these decision makers to, um, to to ask if it's time to look at the marketplace again. Uh, the market moves very quickly when it comes to sort of pharmacy insurance and benefit design. And, and so, you know, yes, we have a program, but whether our program is a fit or not, to me, it's much more about staying on top of the market and pushing uh, the constituents to do more and to get as much as possible. Um, because, you, you know, you could have negotiated an incredible deal last year and, and, and thought that it would be just fine today, but it's become rather stale because of what's happened in the last 12 months. Um, and so I think staying, staying proactive with it is, is, um, you know, is important. And then, and then finally, I'd also encourage you to uh, have a dialogue with your, you know, with your broker about use of national pharmacy expertise. Um, and this isn't, I, I'm not saying in any way that you're, the team that you work with at your broker isn't fantastic. I'm sure they are. It, it would be more about, uh, because of all the different things that team has to worry about, all the different insurances and plan designs and, and, and functional areas that they have to work on, uh, you know, if that if that broker has a team that is all pharmacy all the time, I'd always encourage leverage of that team because keeping on top of the industry and the opportunities, you know, our our um, our research and data over the years has has consistently shown that uh, organizations that that adopt best practices, which is a little bit ambiguous, but those that, those that get it right, all else equal, have more efficient results. They spend less, they have higher quality outcomes, uh, just better results overall. So basically I'm saying push, if you aren't already, push for those, for those optimal outcomes um, as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Joey, you, um, are an actuary. So, which is very common in the insurance space, uh, really looking at risk, calculating risk. Um, you know, and when I think about risk in this space, I'm thinking about, you know, drug shortages or, um, drug pricing and things. And, uh, of course those are things that pharmacists can kind of help with your team, um, come along, think about therapeutic alternatives, et cetera. Um, what are some of the other kind of big challenges uh, that you know GPOs and and PBMs are facing right now? Yeah, I, I think the the industry the industry dynamics uh, they're they're always they're always moving quickly, and so I, I suppose to answer your question, we'd have to think about from whose perspective we're thinking about you know PBMs. I mean, they, you know, they, they do get a, a fair amount of, of, um, of publicity uh, of multiple kinds, but, you know, I think uh, having worked with many of them over the years, I think, I think that the way they're wired um, in general is appropriate, but um, individually uh, on the ground level, getting the most out of their operation is, is tied back to having the right contract in place, right? So the things the things that are concerning, uh, you know, PBMs is being able to provide enough value to their customers to retain market share, and to get that value, they have to contract. Uh, they have to contract with manufacturers in, and pharmacies in order to get the the, the the maximum value that they can. But you know, uh, 
making sure that it's done in a way that doesn't, um, you know, inappropriately move money away from those that, you know, those that, that should have it. Um, you know, we could talk about sort of like, you know, retail pharmacy reimbursements and how they've evolved over the years um, and, and sort of the consolidation of retail pharmacy, right? Those are, those are sort of broader industry issues that, um, you know, that, that we as plan sponsors have less control over and that's more in, in, the, in the span of control of the PBM. If I'm thinking about what, you know, what are the concerns for plan sponsors, right? You touched on it a moment ago. Comes to, one of the biggest ones would come, up, would come to risk. Because as, as you know, Hillary, the, you know, the, the, the potential cost of an individual pharmaco treatment can be substantial, right? And every, every, every day we have new agents coming to market that may do wonderful things. You know, they, they, you know we have single, single treatment um, you know, immunotherapies that can be curative previously for conditions that were not, um, that were only, that were only you know, manage, management of symptoms. Um, the problem is the cost, right? And if, if, you're a, if you're a plan sponsor and you cover, you know, let's say 5,000 lives in your program, um, you could have one patient taking one drug that could increase the cost of the entire plan by 50%. And, um, you know, and so long-term stability is increasingly becoming an issue. It's something that we talk a lot about. How can we protect plan sponsors from the risk associated with these uh, very expensive products that, that provide an important, um, you know, health, health outcome benefit, obviously should be covered, right? But, but at, you know, at a price, at a price that, um, that the plan can't sustain, is, is a different problem, is, is a problem that needs to be addressed. And so finding, uh, and this is where insurance can come into play. So thinking about creative ways to manage that volatility. Um, you know, we have a program in that place. There's a few others that have some programs. I think over the next little while, you'll see a lot more focus in that space. Um, so, so volatility is a big one. And then of course, cost in general, um, certainly, uh, you know, what is, what is loosely referred to as specialty drugs, which has many different definitions, but, you know, generally your, you know, your, your, um, your separately distributed, more expensive, typically requiring special handling, um, uh, most often injectable, but not always products that can be really expensive. Uh, that segment of the market continues to grow substantially. And for most plan sponsors, they'll see that something like, 1% of their patients create 50% of their cost. And, uh, and so it gets more and more attention. And so that's where having the right design elements in place can be important. Um, and it's not, about, it's not about denying patients the medications they need. It's about ensuring the best economics in those medications, which ties back again to the contract essentially with the PBM. Mm-hmm. So along those lines, what is maybe the craziest pharmaceutical pricing story you can tell us? Craziest pharmaceutical pricing story I can tell you. Well, so back, back in my, back in my consulting days, and this is probably, this is probably circa 2005, 2006, uh, was, uh, was working on a a project to help, help a plan sponsor figure out what, what their strategy was going to be. And, and part of that is looking at their historical drug spend, classes that are driving costs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and remember, this is, this is more than 15 years ago. We found, we found one patient 
that was consuming uh, $300,000 of a strong, uh, a strong opioid um, uh, back in, in those times. And uh, one, that, one that would be used in, in late stage cancer, um, you know, primarily. And um, their, their diagnosis uh, was depression. And um, th- more, north of $300,000 of, um, of, of, of a single product. And so uh, it, while, while um, I, sometimes I think I can't be surprised again, things happen all the time that surprise me uh, in, this, in this industry. Wow. So Joey, can you, you know, try to explain for the listeners how pharmacy rebates exactly work? I can, I can certainly try. (laughs) And and, and let me, let me start by, let me start by backing up just a moment and, and saying that, you know, manufacturers, pharmaceutical manufacturers, they're going to give incentives for their products to be used. And they're going to do it in different ways to different groups, right? The groups, usually the groups are providers, payers or PBMs, and patients, right? For example, patients, right? Copay assistance, coupons, hub programs, um, you know, uh, all of those would fall into sort of like the the, the third bucket, the patient bucket. Um, When talking about a payer contract or even a provider contract, one of the, the ways that the manufacturer provides value is in the rebate. And so, so the way it comes together is the, uh, the PBM has contracted with the manufacturer in some way to say, if we put your drug on our preferred formulary tier, which means that we're not going to first try other drugs in the class before we try yours, we're going to always try yours first. So it's prominently positioned. Then contractually, the manufacturer agrees to give an amount of money, um, you know, often a percentage of the, of the cost for the whack or the, or the ingredient costs back to the PBM. That's step one. At that point, step two, the PBM's contract with the plan sponsor that had the, the patient using the product is going to dictate how much of that money is passed through, as we say, uh, to the plan. And then step three, the plan is gonna use that money to lower the costs of the insurance program, right? Assuming assuming it is a self-funded program, which means that the plan is responsible for the risk, which is most most, uh, large employer plans operate this way. And so they'll use it to lower the out-of-pocket costs for employees or their payroll deductions at the beginning of the, uh, you know, per pay period to pay for the insurance and things like that. But, but here's the rub. The term rebate is, is used to describe this money, but it isn't one bucket of money. There are many kinds of monies that manufacturers provide to PBMs, right? Think of it as you know a pie that's split into, call it a dozen different pieces. And those dozen pieces have different names. And one of them is actually called rebates. And the thing, the thing that, that makes this so important is that uh, I, I, all the time I talk to plan sponsors that think that they have passed through because they'll say, yeah, my, my PBM gives me all the rebates. And they believe that what that means is that they're getting all of the money that the PBM gets from the manufacturer. But the reality is they're only getting the one slice out of 12 
or so that I, that I was, you know, just to continue my analogy, they're not getting the rest. There's manufacturer admin fees, there's price protection payments, there's data aggregation grants, it goes on and on and on. And so what's really important from all, you know, take away from all this is to make sure as much as you can that the PBM is agreeing to give you all of the compensation they receive, regardless of what it's called. Um, but I'll warn you, it's not easy to do, right? This is where leverage um, and, and some subject matter depth can really help. Um, but even if you can't get all of the money, then you should be looking for disclosures to understand all of the types of money they receive, trying to quantify them as best you can, and at least use that information for your decision. Because the big problem happens when, remember, the, the primary objective is to keep alignment of incentives, make sure the PBM is is, is, is rowing down the same path that you are and you both win together. And if the PBM is earning, let's call it secret bits of money, then it's gonna be much harder to have any, um, any hope of doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's where that transparency is key. There's definitely been an emphasis on that over the last few years um, and such a great illustration that you may be, you know, in the language is you're getting all the rebates, but it really might not be, but a slice of the pie. So, um, definitely seeing some legislation, you know, I'm, uh, pretty involved with, with Tennessee's pharmacy association and a lot of different, um, pharmacy associations and, and state boards have, have had some increased focus on that. So, um, that will be interesting. And then of course, um, there's not, uh, the, the plan, you know, arrangements and things aren't always, uh, shared with the provider, um, or the person that's actually prescribing, uh, the prescriptions to the patient. So, um, definitely some opportunities, uh, along the, um, the chain, uh, for, you know, improving patient care. Um, so what are some innovations that you see coming in the pharmacy and pharmacy benefits space? Right. Well, one, one of, one of them, uh, actually ties to your point about, uh, about use of technology. And I, I think that it's, it's interesting that, uh, so often, right. A prescriber is asked to make, you know, select a product. And again, let's, let's assume we're talking about a you know, an area where, you know, there are two, two different molecules that the, that the prescriber is indifferent between, right? We're not talking about one is better than the other, you know, a, a patient, you know, with, with um, hypercholesterolemia looking at, you know, two different um, starting dose statins, right? Generally speaking, most prescribers, they may have a preference, but probably not a strong one, but they don't know which one is cheaper for the patient. They don't know which one's cheaper for the plan. And so one of the innovations that has, that has sort of started moving through is where uh, prescribers uh, via their EMRs can look, right, based on the patient's insurance, look into what is the cheapest alternative for the patient of the, you know, the, the, the suggested drug against the suggested drug that the, that the um, prescriber inputs into the system. What are the alternatives? And then which one is the cheapest, both for the uh, patient and for the plan? I think most of the time prescribers are just are, are just doing doing it without the information, and having the information may change um, prescribing patterns for some classes, uh, and for others it won't make a difference. But um, having the technology certainly better than not. In our world, 
Um, our PBM has built this technology and then we've customized it further. Uh, the rules in terms of how, how often, um, how many classes and so forth, information will get pushed out. Uh, now it only works when the prescriber's EMR is launched on the software that the PBM houses. Uh, in the case of our PBM, I think it's, uh, I think it's close to 90% 90, 90 of prescribers are now live on the system. And so that, you know, that's having some, uh, some impact, we hope. We're looking forward to sort of looking at the data to see how much, uh, how much uh, impact that that can have. So that's, that's one area. You know, and, and, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, the, the progress in, um, you know, pharmacogenomics and um, an individualized therapy is just wonderful from a, from a science perspective and from a, you know, a, a quality of life perspective, but it also brings some challenges um, and will force us to have increasingly difficult conversations, um, you know, in looking at things like, um, like qualities or quality adjusted life years, right? How much does the drug cost versus how much, how much good does it do from a, from a quality of life perspective? And um, so I think we're gonna have, uh, that's both an innovation in the industry, but one that will bring some difficult questions to bear. And then finally, uh, the, in the biosimilar space, uh, you know, when it comes to provider administered biosimilars, they've been around for a while. We've had them for, for some years, you know, drugs like uh, rituximab or infliximab, pegfograstum, you know, th there's been a few, you know, it does half dozen, a little bit more, but now, uh, in fact, right now, right, our first round of self-administered biosimilars are coming to market. And um, I believe this will result in sort of new contracting opportunities and new design opportunities for plan sponsors uh, to, you know, to try to further drive uh, value into their programs. Now, I also don't think it's going to happen super quickly, right? I think it'll take time to mature and will depend on a number of things like uh, how important interchangeability is going to be. Um, here for the biosim um, you know, versus versus the the, the biologic, um, and uh, and of course uh, patent patent litigation, which always plays a role in how fast the new molecules come to market and so on. But uh, you know the what's what's for sure uh, a bankable, a sure bet, if you will, is that the industry is going to continue to move, and uh, and at a fast pace. And so staying staying on top of it is is always going to be you know uh, advisable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joey, thanks so much for sharing uh, more about, you know, this side of the pharmacy industry. Uh, it's, it's always, you know, so fascinating to get uh, some more, you know, detail about that and, and what's happening. Um, so as our final question that I love to ask all of our guests is what is some advice you would tell your younger self or for others out there who are just getting started in their career? Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's a great question. And uh, I would, I would encourage, I would encourage you to sort of, um, you know, keep, 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 keep options open, be, be, be open to, to broadening your horizons. I mean, even if you have a, a subject that, that drives you and gives you real, real passion, um, and hopefully you do, right? Some of us find them early in our careers. Some of them, some of us don't, but regardless, uh, you know, for example, you know, you may be, you may be in pharmacy school, uh, you know, or, you know, up to your residency or just, just getting started. Um, and so you're going to be, you know, you're going to be strong in things like, you know, kinetics and dynamics and, and dosing, but, but what about, 
adjacent areas of, of the, you know, of, of the practice, like, you know, reimburse, reimbursement methodologies and rates, you know, payer formulary placement and coverage determinations, um, the, the, the universe of different um, sort of clinical edits that are out there, not just prior auth, but, you know, step therapy and, you know, dosing limits and, um, and things like that. And then, and then all the different sort of class of trade variations. And in other words, you know, even if you plan on practicing in one area, like a clinical setting forever, you know, the information can be really important in broad in broadening your horizons. So I would just, I would just try to get as much of the full picture as you can, um, and then use it for the areas that you're most passionate about. And, uh, and, and it, presuming that's in the pharmacy space, there's, there's no shortage of adjacent areas to investigate, uh, you know, talk to others, learn, and, uh, and, and, and stay interested um, and active for a long, long time. Wonderful. Such great advice. Uh, yes, there are so many uh, different areas of pharmacy and a lot of pharmacists over at Health Trust. So, um, Joey, it was such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Hillary. Thanks for having me and uh, uh, welcome you here at the offices anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.